Good morning. Palm Sunday, not just because I love donkeys, but because it is the most, one of the most joyful Sundays in the Christian calendar has always been one of my favorites. It's so joyful. It's the one Sunday where just for a minute, everybody gets it. Everybody cheers as Jesus rides into the city on a donkey and they yell, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they lay down their coats in respect and they wave palm branches just cheering as he rides into the city. I love all the unexpected aspects of Palm Sunday. The disciples and the crowd, they expected Jesus to be the conquering Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. Surely he would ride in on a mighty horse, dressed for battle, with an army behind him, ready to overthrow the Roman authorities and defeat their terrible circumstances and bring his kingdom to bear in a profound way. And that does happen just in the opposite way that they expect. Instead, as Pastor Howard said, he humbly rides in on a donkey. Jesus' kingdom was coming, but the opposite way they expected, not through military victory, but through suffering and death. His disciples, although with him on this Palm Sunday, that first Sunday, pledging their undying love and loyalty, they would scatter within days when Jesus, their leader, needed them the most. So our passage this week is a series of accounts of what happens after Palm Sunday, what is typically referred to as the Passion Week. And specifically, the passages we're gonna look at today are Jesus' last day, that Passion Day, Crucifixion Day, what we have come to call Good Friday, which in itself seems like an oxymoron. How could a day where Jesus dies so terribly be good? We see Jesus mocked by Roman soldiers. We see those same soldiers force a man to carry Jesus cross up the hill. We see Jesus crucified, and we see him buried in a tomb of a man we've never met before. So let's read together from Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away to the place that is the Praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head and staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple road and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. 
A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemba shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his knees, needs. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were there also. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So in today's passages, we see Mark showing the events of the Passion Week as a series of 
situational ironies. Now, if you don't remember from English class way back in high school, situational irony is when something we expect to happen doesn't happen and the opposite happens. It's sort of the unexpected that makes you go, huh? So Mark puts all of this in a situation that makes us go, wait, what? I would also point out that irony in these passages is sometimes because people that are involved are unwitting and unknowing in their irony. They don't know that they're actually fulfilling prophecies that were said long ago. I've characterized these situational ironies, the things that make us go, what? As denials, drinking, and dying. So the first irony is denials. Last week, Pastor Howard told us that Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, having just days before pledged his undying loyalty and said, Jesus, if everybody else deserts you, I won't desert you. Not only would Peter deny and abandon Jesus, he would, Jesus died instead of Peter. That's ironic. This week in verses 16 through 20, we see the soldiers mocking Jesus. They take him to their barracks, which is called the Praetorium. It's the palace of Herod that was also kind of an army base, and Pilate would have been staying there when he visited Jerusalem. The soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus, and they put a crown of thorns on him, and they mocked him as the king of the Jews. They bowed down to him in jest and sarcasm. They deny who he really is. Later on the hill, when Jesus was on the cross, they insulted him and taunted him, saying he can't save himself. They laughed as they recalled, he said he would destroy the temple in three days and then build it again. They cast lot for his clothing, unknowingly fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. Unbeknownst to them, the soldiers were ironically declaring the truth. Not only was Jesus king of the Jews, but Jesus was God. And he was the creator of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles and the whole world. So Jesus' kingdom was greater than that of Herod's and greater than that of Pilate's. And it was coming, just not in the way that they expected. They did not want Jesus to be as popular as he was with the Jewish people. Jesus was worthy to be bowed down to, not in sarcasm and jest, but truly bowed down to as the King of King and the Lord of Lords. They said he couldn't save himself, and yet he could have. Because he was God, he could have called on legions of angels to come take him off that cross, spare his suffering, and bring his kingdom in another way. And yet, he silently stayed on the cross and died to save all those who would believe. See, what they said was true. He was king of the Jews. 
just on a scale that they didn't understand. And that is what made it ironic. So those were the first ironies, the denials of Peter and the soldiers. The second irony is drinking. Back in Mark chapter 10, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they were brothers, they asked Jesus if they could have the seats of honor when he came into his kingdom, one on his left and one on his right. And Jesus responds saying, you don't know what you're asking and they're not mine to give because really they were God the fathers to give. But they, he then asks them, would you be willing to drink the cup I drink? Meaning he's, he knows he's gonna be drinking a cup of suffering. And by asking to be in the places of honor, they were asking if they could be the same as him. And he knew that painful suffering was ahead. He knew that cup of suffering was going to be terrible. The drinking in today's passage is both literal and metaphorical. In verses 23 and 36, a man who is not named puts a sponge on a stick and dips it in wine vinegar mixed with myrrh. This sour tasting wine was the drink of laborers and common soldiers and would, if he had put it to his lips, possibly dulled the pain a little. And so Jesus refuses it. Commentators say that Jesus refused it because he was fully resolved to drink the cup of suffering that God had assigned to him. Having prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He knows that the cup of suffering is his and his alone. And so he did resolutely drink that cup of suffering. The other metaphorical drinking or cup of suffering as the cost of discipleship is seen in verses 21 through 32. Previously in Mark 8, Jesus had told the disciples that to follow him meant they had to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And the disciples, even in theory, thought that this was a very hard teaching. In an ironic actuality, a man named Siren of Cyrene actually does take up the cross and follow Jesus up the hill of Golgotha. He was a well-known person from North Africa who became a follower of Jesus. And he was in Jerusalem likely for the Passover. Normally, a person condemned to die by crucifixion the way Jesus was would have been required to carry his own cross up the hill. It typically weighed 30 to 40 pounds, just the crossbar. Because Jesus was so weakened from his flogging and beating, having been mocked by the soldiers, the soldiers forced this Simon of Cyrene, who was walking by, to carry it for Jesus. 
The soldiers would have done this under threat of beating or killing Simon, so it's not like he really had a choice. But he was fulfilling, without knowing it, denying himself, taking up the cross, and carrying it to follow Jesus up the hill where Jesus would die. He unknowingly fulfills that prophecy. So the first was denials. The second irony was drinking. The third irony, sadly, is dying. We know from Deuteronomy 21 that the person hung on a tree was considered cursed by God. We also know from Old Testament law that when a person is ritually or physically unclean, they were required to be sent outside the camp, separated and isolated from the rest of Israel. This too was seen as punishment. The Romans crucified criminals in the New Testament outside the city of Jerusalem, pretty much to appease the Jewish authorities. James and John had asked for those places of honor on the right and the left of Jesus, and instead there would be a robber and a thief on either side of Jesus as he was hung and crucified on the cross. Those places of honor, ironically, fulfilled the promise from Psalm 22. He will be numbered with the transgressors. All of this, being numbered with the transgressors, being sent outside the, his beloved city of Jerusalem as unclean, hung on a tree, it all fulfilled prophecies in a terrible, terrible combination. Jesus, the true king, was numbered as a criminal, crucified between other criminals, and treated as unclean, even though he was the only sinless person. He became the sacrificial lamb to atone for sin for everyone. But the bystanders, they misunderstood, maybe because they didn't speak Aramaic, maybe because his cries were sort of anguished and hard to understand. They thought he was calling Elijah. It's understood from verse 36 that Elijah was seen as the prophet who would come and intervene and help and save the righteous. So they sort of mockingly said, let's see if Elijah comes to his rescue. Is he righteous enough? Is he innocent enough that Elijah would intervene? Um, yes. Jesus was innocent enough and he was righteous enough. He was the only one that would have fit that bill. And yet, rather than Elijah coming to rescue Jesus, Jesus rescues us. That's ironic. So this series of ironies, Mark shows us in these verses, the ironies of denials, drinking, and dying produce extraordinary results. Number one, Verse 33 tells us that darkness came over the land for three hours, from noon to three. This unnatural darkness signifies God's judgment 
and a time of mourning for an only son as described in Amos chapter 8. Verse 38, number 2, tells us that the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This very heavy velvet curtain separated the Holy of Holies, the part of the temple that only the high priest could go in once a year to make atonement for all the people. It was no longer separated once the curtain was torn in two. And this symbolized that there was no longer needed a separation between God and the people. Jesus was the mediator, and he solved that separation. The third result, verse 39 tells us that Jesus' final cry was so striking and significant that it caused the centurion that hardened army officer of the Roman guard, to instantly recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. Verse 43 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the council who had voted to approve Jesus' crucifixion, risked being seen as not in solidarity with the council, and he goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. This was hugely risky. Normally, the body of a condemned person would only be released to family, or not released at all. So because Pilate had sort of um, mixed feelings about Jesus' crucifixion as well, he unusually grants this request. And Jesus is buried in the tomb of this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who we've never heard of before. Jesus was buried the same day, fulfilling Jewish requirements for burial before sundown. And this too, ironically, fulfills Psalm 16, where it says, You will not let your faithful one see decay. Also ironic about Joseph of Arimathea is his very contact in wrapping Jesus' body would have made him ritually unclean by Jewish standards. And yet we know that anybody that Jesus touches becomes clean before God. So these results, the unnatural darkness, the temple curtain destroyed, the con conversion of non-believers, and an act of penitence on the part of somebody involved in killing Jesus shows how Jesus' death impacted everything. The laws of nature, the laws of the temple, and ritual cleanliness, even the logic of unbelief were all upended by Jesus' death. Mark presents all these ironies the resulting feeling that we are left with is one of confusion. It's not supposed to be this way, is how we're feeling. Jesus was the perfect king of kings, and he suffered and died and was counted among criminals. Denied by the disciples, mocked by Jesus' Jewish authorities and soldiers, and yet he was willing to drink the cup of suffering and die to make us clean. 
So here on this Palm Sunday in 2020, what are we supposed to do with this passage, with all these ironies? So today's Palm Sunday, and normally we'd expect to be gathering in groups and celebrating Jesus' triumphal return and waving palms and being really happy. During the first Passion Week, the disciples were then scattered and isolated and fearful. They were fearful for their very lives. Ironically, because of the pandemic we're now facing, we too are fearful, scared, scattered, sometimes isolated and disappointed. But unlike the first century disciples, we know more about how the story ends. The fear and the sadness and the isolation and the disappointment only last a small amount of time. We know in ways that they could not have possibly known that Jesus would rise again after three days, that death would be defeated and the source of their hope and ours, our faith, our hope, our trust is real. God is bigger than the loneliness and the fear and the anxiety that are, we are facing in this present moment. <clears throat> God does not turn his face away and is present with us in our brokenness and pain. He does not deny us. He did drink the cup of suffering for us, and he did it to die for us. So it's truly the hope of Easter that we are looking forward to in a different and perhaps ironic, more sincere way this year than ever before. Knowing the grace by which you have been saved and the hope for the eternal life that Jesus accomplished on the cross that is what we hope for this Passion Week. It's real, and there is no irony in that. I promise.